Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Breakfast is sponsored today by Joseph R. Safra, dedicated in honor of Haron Shohat and family. <clears throat> I want to thank everyone as well for uh, joining us yesterday for the various celebrations of the Bat Mitzvah. Thank you so, so much. It means the world to, uh, to me and my family, and especially to Sarah. Uh, and thank you as well. <clears throat> Thank you as well to, uh, to Jessica Zaga for uh, really going above and beyond and helping us arrange the day. It's, uh, it was, it was uh, so special, and she really uh, you know, worked with a lot of dedication. Thank you so much. Breakfast is also sponsored and dedicating loving memory of Naftali God. Naftali ben Leah and Nisan God, Alema Shalom. Beloved husband of Shifra God, father of Michael and Joseph, God, Lily Ishai, and... Peggy Dahan. <clears throat> okay. Rabotai, we begin now a new chapter. A chapter in which the Jewish people uh, enter into their, the infancy, uh, let's call it, of being a nation. In fact, when the Jewish people actually leave Egypt, the Chachamim explain that the leaving of Egypt was like the emerging, the birth of a, of a new nation. That means that on some level and in some way, the experience of being in Egypt, called the Kur Habarzel, the uh, iron furnace, was the uh, smelting, if you will, of the iron of the nature of the Jewish people into the people that we have become today. Now, it's a difficult thing to recognize that, but unfortunately, this is something that all of us recognize and notice in, uh, in, the, in the way we live our lives, that this is something which is true. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. You see, in Paro's eyes, Paro says, let's outsmart him. Let's, uh, you know, slowly but surely lure them in. In fact, in the beginning, they would say, uh, you know, we're working on this national project. Everyone's coming down to work. And everyone would turn up and they'd pay them very handsomely for coming to work on behalf of this governmental project. And then slowly but surely, uh, the, the Egyptian nobles would slip away. And then slowly but surely, the Egyptian nationals would slip away. Until who was left there? The only people that were there was the Jewish people. Sometimes, this has been something that has marked us throughout history, is that we are eternally a, a, a ger, we are eternally a sojourner. We're always the, uh, the, the minority people living in a country, no matter where we've lived. And it's not easy being the outsider or being the other. We're like the child in class that wants to be accepted. So we'll do whatever we can to make people like us, to make people think that we're the same as them. So taking off the kippah or the talet or the tzitzit, because look, I'm the same as you. It's like your daughter comes home and suddenly says, I want these pair of sneakers, or I want this kind of a shirt. They desperately want to fit in, and the Jews were no different. They slowly but surely started to try and fit in in Egypt. And invariably, our host countries, when we try to be like them, say, hold on a second, you don't belong here. This is not for you. Paro says, Let's outsmart him. So the Jewish people, who's the only people turning up to work? Only the Jews, desperate to prove that they're better 
at being Egyptian than the Egyptians are. Okay? This is the fascinating thing about us. And then what happens is slowly but surely Paro removes the pay. And all of a sudden, the Jewish people are turning up to work for no pay. You know what it's called? When you're working for no pay, that's slavery. Slowly but surely, they became beaten to get to work. Beaten to upkeep their quotas. And now the Jewish person who was once getting paid by the brick, who could produce 20 bricks a day, is now saying, what are you talking about? Said the Egyptian taskmaster. You only produce three bricks? We know you're capable of 20, because that's how much you were producing when we paid you. This sinister trick that Paro does gets the Jewish people to be enslaved in Egypt. But being enslaved in Egypt was a crucial part of the Jewish people becoming a people. In fact, as my rabbi always points out, the first time the Jewish people are called a nation and not a family, remember they were once just Yaakov Avinu's family, Abraham Avinu's family, Yitzchak Avinu's family. They were the Avinu family, right? This is who they were. <coughs> Suddenly, they get down to Egypt. There's a population explosion. And what are they called? This nation, this people. What's going to happen, he says? What happens if we go to war? And they will join in with our enemies, the Alaminaarets, and we will leave the country. And they will, excuse me, and they will leave the country. Rashi says, one second, you're worried about the fact that the Jews will join your enemies and leave? Well, if you don't like them, let them leave. So there's two interpretations as to what Paro was really worried about. Interpretation number one is it's called Lashon Saginor. Saginor means that when you meet someone who's blind, you say, wow, he can see really well. You really mean it in, a, uh, in, a, uh, uh, in the opposite way, right? You call someone short. What do we call a, a, a guy <coughs> who's absolutely enormous on a football team? We call him tiny, right? Why do we call him that? Because you're almost caricature, you know, you're making a caricature of their outlandish size. Or what's it called? <clears throat> when someone's so smart and you call them, you know, you call them a fool, you call them an idiot, you know, we, we have our little dumbbell over here. Meanwhile, the guy's winning, you know, he's winning scholarships to every, every university. So one answer is that they, the Egyptians actually referring to themselves, but they meant that there'll be a, a war, the Jews will join the enemy, and then we will be driven. But they don't want to say that, so they kind of say the, you know, like, it's like when you talk about a, a sickness, and you say, if someone has uh, a sickness like this and that, but you don't say, if I have, if you have, because we don't want that, to, we don't want to say that about ourselves. So one answer is, one point is, Paro is saying, we're worried that they're going to take our stuff, they're going to leave, they're going to, sorry, they're going to, they're going to force us to leave the country. The second interpretation, Rabotai, is Paro says to his people, we need to outsmart them. We need to make them slaves. Because in case of a, a war comes, the Jews will join our enemy, the Alamarat, and they will leave the country. There's a certain uh, trope to anti-Semitism that goes back to the very beginning. Right? It's been a, con a constant in anti-Semitism no matter where we've been in every country. And that is number one, that Jews are not loyal. In case of a war, there's an enemy, who are the Jews gonna side with? Of course the enemy. Why would you think that? 
They love this country. They're trying their best to in- integrate, to assimilate into it. Why would you think that this is a problem? No. The Jews, their, lo- their loyalty lies elsewhere. So in case of a problem, they're going to side with them. And the second thing is that wherever Jews succeed, their success comes because they were parasites and took it from the rest of us. They're sucking on the blood, both literally and figuratively, on the teat of the Christians, of the Arabs, of the who knows who, everybody. It's only ever their money, it's only ever their success that we came in and stole. One second, when they did well, who did they steal it from? Right? They couldn't have made money just by themselves. And, and the hardest part about the trope, Jews being bankers, controlling the economy, idiot! You know why Jews were bankers? You know why they were moneylenders? Because you forbid them from owning land. You wouldn't let them into your universities. They couldn't have a profession. They couldn't own any land. So what did they do? They took some money. They lent it to you for 3% interest. Then took that. That's you. Then blaming them for the thing that you made them. You see that? It's one of the oldest tropes of anti-Semitism. Rabotai, what does it mean when I say that the Jewish people were formed in, uh, in Egypt? What it means is that we know that the Jewish people are famous for being stubborn. In Hebrew, what, uh, what is the expression which communicates the fact that Jews are stubborn? Am kisheh orif. Ayn resh peh. What is ayn resh peh? Does that remind you of something? The same letters that you use to spell ha'orif, which are the back of the neck, the stubbornness, what is, why do we call it the back of the neck? Because you stiff neck, you can't bend your head, you can't bow, you can't admit, you can't lower your head. Stiff neck, stand up. Where did they learn that from? Fascinating. That the king of, Par- of Egypt is called Paro. The letters of Ha'orif and the letters of Paro are the same name. Is there a more stubborn person than Paro who watches literally his country burn to the ground and he won't let the Jews go? So much so that we're going to read in subsequent parashiyot, they'll tell him later on in the end of the story, Don't you know, say his servants, say his advisors, don't you know that Egypt is lost? It's burning to the ground around you. Let them, let them go get rid of them. They're the, they're the worst thing for us. They're killing us by staying here. Their God is raining one plague after the next upon our heads. Why would you want to keep them here? Paro is the most stubborn. It is in that space where the Jewish people learn the character trait of being stubborn. In fact, Alpi Kabbalah, what is important for the Jewish people, what is important for the bringing of Mashiach is... For the Jewish people, who are supposed to be Or Lagoyim, a light to the nations. One way of understanding Or Lagoyim is, you shine a light onto something, and you illuminate it. Right? How do you illuminate it? Like we teach the non-Jews of the world, um, this moral code that God gave to us. And by the way, God didn't give it to us for us. God gave it to us for the world. We're supposed to be this light to the nations. We're supposed to show them our documents, so to speak. These are, this is our wisdom. This is what we've learned. This is what you're supposed to understand for the world. And by and large, by the way, we've done a pretty good job of it. 
teaching the world of the value of human life. However bad it is, it's better than it's ever been in history before. Right? All these different ideas, the ideas in Torah that were communicated through time or through osmosis to the world. We've done that. Good, Baruch Hashem. But there's another interpretation of Or Lagoyim. I want you to imagine someone who's lost a hundred dollar bill. They're looking around on the floor, they can't find it. You run over, you say to them, I see you, what are you looking for? The guy says, I'm looking, I dropped a hundred dollar bill. So what do you say, being a nice guy? You take out your phone, you turn on the flashlight, and what do you look for? Look for his hundred dollar bill. As soon as you do it, find it, what do you do? You run, no. As soon as you find it, what do you do? <laughs> you pick it up, you give it back to him. What a kiddush Hashem, correct? Your light didn't find something that you lost. Your light helped that person find something that they lost. When God creates a language and the word, excuse me, a nation and the word for a nation and the word for a language are used interchangeably in Jewish theology. Hivdilanu. We say, separate us from the people. We don't mean he separated us from other languages. We mean that every nation has its own language. What that means is that there's something that each nation is supposed to communicate. It is just the job of the Jewish people to try and help refine that special thing and bring it out into the world. Our Chachamim tell us, as an example, that the nation of Yishmael, what is it supposed to bring to the world? The power of prayer. Which is why the nation is called Yishmael. God should hear. They pray more than anybody else. They're supposed to bring that to the world. Rabotai, if that's the case, that means that when the Jewish people go to Egypt, they mine a trait from Egypt. What is the trait of the Egyptians that once purified becomes a part and parcel of the Jewish story, the Jewish story to revolutionize, to purify, to perfect the entire world? That's supposed to be our mission. We take the trait of stubbornness. It helps us understand now why, and listen to this carefully, the Jewish people are destined, or at least parts of us are destined to go to so many different countries. We were destined to go to different places. I remember I told you a story a little while ago about uh, the, four, the four great tzaddikim, the four great scholars. The Chida writes that there were four great geonim. And you know what, all the Jewish people was concentrated in one area, and the rabbis, you know, didn't necessarily want to go to the far-flung communities of this world. So four great geonim take a boat trip, and as they're on the boat, a big wind comes and takes them off course. Pirates come, they load the boat, they take all the people, they go and sell them as slaves. Every dock, every port that they stop in. All of a sudden, the Jewish people in the first place, they realize, oh my gosh, this guy had a long beard, a kippah, he looks, uh, they start talking, they realize these are four great tzaddikim. They, didn't have, they start saying, we want this one, we want it. They real, the, the pirates are not stupid. They realize the guy's an old guy. You're not hiring him to be a worker. He must be an important person. They raise the price through the roof for each one of the four rabbis. 
the community only has enough money to redeem one. The second rabbi, now they all know, they get to the second port, they send someone to the community, we have three great rabbis here. The second community buys a rabbi. The third buys a rabbi. The fourth buys a rabbi. What we learn from this story in Shema Gedolim and Ahidah is that whether we like it or not, our mission is to do this. So when the rabbis didn't go there, God brought them there. If we are not shining a light that is bright enough for the whole world to learn from, from Israel, if we are not a bright enough light from Israel, Hashem says, okay, let me boot you out of Eretz Israel, destroy the Beit HaMikdash, drive you into exile, better your ways there, learn under duress to reach out to God and to refine your ways. When, when it's so difficult and all these pains and you know, problems come to you, you start to pray with all your heart and suddenly a, a Jewish people, the light is kindled once again within us. And the people of that place, The people of the world see that the name of God is called upon you. And they are in awe, they are in reverence of you. That reverence helps people understand. It always blows my mind when I read about how in South Korea they have decided to study the Talmud. Maybe they just have met life jealousy, I'm not sure. Maybe they just want to see Umashas. They, you know, they, love, they heard all the reports about how beautiful it was, and nobody got drunk and there were no disturbances. Maybe that's why they did it, but I don't think so. What I understand is that they basically said, how is it that this upstart nation or start-up nation, has developed all these technologies in 70 years. Not only are they exporting tomatoes, you know, at the time, for all this time, ironically, we had no gas, we had no oil, we had no natural resources that we were exporting. We were exporting falafel. Like, that's, that was the best that we had, you know what I mean? This is, what did you, what, what could we do? So they had to, they were forced to innovate. And they didn't understand, how are these people doing this? How is it that a small nation is producing all of these, uh, you know, Nobel Prizes. It doesn't make sense. It's disproportionate to any other people on earth. So they said it must be because they studied the, their books. So they started teaching non-Jewish people with no intention of ever converting. They, they're learning Talmud in South Korea. When did that I don't know if it's the Schottenstein edition, if they've translated into South Korean. But it's already happening. They didn't start just now for the Dafyomi. This is an old story. Ten years maybe, huh? They sent a TV crew to Yes, I've actually seen the footage. Yes, you guys are right. There was a TV crew that went to Yeshiva of Panovich. You know, to the, what they don't realize is that most Jews can't get into Panovich. But either way, what's, fa- <laughs> what's, fascinating, what's fascinating to me is that there's this, there's this thing that happens to the Jewish people. Every time we go through something like this, we're marked. We're marked by something. You know, when we went through what we went through in Germany, we learned not to tolerate racism and bigotry. We learned that. And, and although it's forgotten now, but in the, in the civil rights movement, Jews were marching alongside the black community to try and ensure that these things never happened. My grandfather, when he came here in South Bend, Indiana, which is a heartland of America, it really, really is. I mean, it's Notre Dame country. You know, it's Americans, Americans. Like, you know what I mean? And, and there, the segregation was alive and well. And they were, uh, and they, my, my grandfather is quoted in the article, I could show you from back then. 
He says, I came here from Germany. Who knows better than us? You know, that you can't treat a person differently because they're not like you. It's very unpopular for him to say that then. But after we went through what we went through, we began to understand that popular or unpopular, you know, this is something you need to stand up against. You see, these are things that we learn. We pick up along the way from the, pe- from the places that we go. Rabbi Dai, it's true on a national level, but it's also true on a human and an individual level. In the difficult circumstances that we go through, many times, the minute a bad situation is done, we're so happy, we're like, Baruch Hashem, we go up to the Sefer Torah, we say, Gomel. We put the excuse, this situation, the experience in a box, we close it up, we throw it in the garbage, preferably the trash compactor, and then we burn it. We don't ever want to revisit the painful times of our lives. But the reason why you were there was so that there should be something that you take from there. They're supposed to, a person is supposed to journey into that experience and say, okay, now that I have a little perspective, why, why was I put through that? What changes do I make, have I made, because I was there? What's my orif from my paro? What did I get from there? How will I have changed my life fundamentally because of a, of a, of a, a traumatic life experience? And by the way, the nature of that trauma doesn't just mean sickness. It might be when a person is unemployed for three weeks. It might be when a person is struggling to find someone, the right person to marry. It might be when a person is having you know, issues with raising children. It might be a person who's having trouble having children. But every person's got their bag. There's no one who doesn't have their baggage. Trust me, as the rabbi, I get the people that nobody thinks has their baggage. They come to me and suddenly you realize, oh, you know what? Them too, them too, me too, everybody too. Not hashtag me too, that's something else. <laughs> Rabotai, and I'd like to just end with this. The first thing is, number one, is the first trope is that Jews are not loyal. But the second trope was, as we said, um, was that everything that they did was my success. There's a great line that goes, success has many orphans. Has success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. We love taking credit for everybody's success. I gave this person. I made this person. I raised my kids too. I, what do you mean you raised your kids too? What are they, a fern? You watered them and then they just grew? They had nothing to do with it? To not recognize your child's role in their own success is to do what the Egyptians did. It's to say what the Egyptians did. Everything that they have is mine. Where else do we find it? Lavan. Lavan says, after Yaakov works for 14 years for him, and then more time afterwards, what does he say? Habanim banai. The sons are mine. The daughters are mine. And everything that you see belongs to me. I did it. Do you know fathers like that? I made you. I gave you your first job. How dare you? Don't you think sometimes that sons might, might have brought something interesting or new to the company? Yes, you taught them something. Don't you think they built something on top of that? Maybe they helped you with your marketing or your social media presence. Maybe they helped you develop something in a way that you might not have thought. Maybe they made you think, may, is it possible that there was something that belonged to them? The second thing I want to say is, as well, the second lesson I think from this story is um, the ability and the graciousness to allow people to own their own successes. 
to praise them and to raise them up for seeing them having learned and them having taken what you gave them and turned it into something beautiful. You know, I love the idea that the, the Midrash says that when the Jewish people went to uh, Yam Suf, all the Egyptians drowned, except for, except for Rafi, except for Paro. Paro did not drown. And the commentators say that Paro miraculously lived in order to be able to say, sing praises to God. The other Midrash, another Midrash says that Paro lived miraculously long life to become the king of Nineveh later on. But I think maybe there's another interpretation. All the Egyptian soldiers died in, that, in, in the Yamsuf. But Paro did not die. Because Paro emerged with the Jews on the other side. Paro had taught the Jewish people that if plague upon plague visits you, that doesn't mean that you need to do what someone else is telling you what to do. Even though all the odds, all the, the, the signs were pointing in one way, it doesn't mean that you have to break. After the war, some people left their Judaism and some people said, forget the war, forget the pain, forget the death. I'm still a proud Jew. Wow! Paro is still alive. Isn't that magnificent? So everything dies in the Yom except for Paro. Because 600,000 men and 600,000 equivalent, maybe 3 million people walk out with the mark and the lesson of Paro in their hearts. Not what he taught them. But the lesson that they had learned from refining the trait of the people and the experience that they had been through. Baruch Amen ve'amen. Rabbi Hanan ya